Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, this morning we've called uh, our service today Cloth and Stone. We'll sort of find out why. Uh, in a moment, if that's not clear enough for some, uh, Cloth and Stone. But it's also a bit of a play on what we did Thursday evening. For the very first time, we held a Thursday night service. Uh, about 70 of us gathered at the Soldier Memorials Gardens at Port Elliot, overlooking Horseshoe Bay, uh, for something that we called Cup and Garden. Uh, we shared communion together, Cup, Jesus praying, may this cup be taken from me, uh, in a garden, and it was basically like a, a Gethsemane service. And so we did that Thursday evening. It was absolutely stunning. It was fantastic. And who knows, it may become a new tradition for us. So for those of you not there, give a bit of a glimpse of what that was like, sitting in the shade, listening to the sounds of the ocean, uh, which I don't think Jesus had in Gethsemane, but still... Uh, and uh, so that was just a great night and a big thank you for those who came and those who helped make that happen. Uh, that, that really was good. Well, this morning we're going to move on from the garden scene, as you'd expect, and uh, we're going to start having a look at that first quote Easter Sunday, let's call it Resurrection Sunday, 1991 years ago, but who's counting? 1991 years ago. I am a bit of a fan of numbers. And so today I've decided to read, on Thursday night I read, uh, we read passages from all four Gospels. There are four books in our Bible which tell the story of Jesus, essentially his 30 years of life on the planet. And uh, they're called what we call Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You've probably heard that phrase before. Uh, one of them is John. And this morning I just want to take our readings from John chapter 20 up to verse 21. So it's John 20, 21. That's what I'm doing this morning. I thought I'd hear far more groans than that, John 20, 21. No, forget it. No, forget it. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so what we do, if you're unfamiliar with the church environment, it's very courageous for you to be here. We really thank you for that. Uh, my job right now is I'm going to read some of the Easter story. I almost said Christmas then. I'm going to read the Easter story uh, and uh, so you can hear it as it was written, and then I'll explain a few things of what we see in here. Okay, So I'm going to read from my this Bible, uh, the, the lyrics, the scriptures will also be put up on the screen uh, so that you know I'm not completely making everything up as we go entirely. Verse John 20 and starting at the top. Very early Sunday morning, before sunrise, daylight saving, Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb. When she arrived, she discovered that the stone that sealed the entrance to the tomb was moved away. So she went running as fast as she could to go tell Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she told them, they've taken the Lord's body from the tomb. We don't know where it is. Then Peter and the other disciple jumped up and ran to the tomb to go see for themselves. They started out together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Turns out that guy's the one that wrote this. Found it very important to him that he said he was faster than Peter. <laughs> he, speaking of himself, didn't enter the tomb, but peeked in and saw only the linen cloths lying there. Then Peter came behind him, <laughs> puffing and panting, and went right into the tomb. He too noticed the linen cloths lying there, but 
the burial cloth that had been on Jesus' head had been rolled up and placed separate from the other cloths. Don't think a mummy here, but basically the Jews would wrap her people in blankets and cloths. Okay. Then the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first <clears throat> went in, and after one look, he believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that prophesied that he was destined to rise from the dead. Puzzled, Peter and the other disciple then left and went back to their homes. Mary arrived back at the tomb, broken and sobbing. She stooped to peer inside and through her tears she saw two angels in dazzling white robes sitting where Jesus' body had been laid. One was at the head and one was at the feet. Dear woman, why are you crying? They asked. Mary answered, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Then she turned around to leave and there was Jesus standing in front of her. But she didn't realize it was him. He said to her, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Mary answered, thinking he was only the gardener. Sir, if you've taken his body somewhere else, Please tell me, and, and I will go. And uh, Mary, Jesus interrupted her. Turning to face him, she said, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for my teacher. Jesus cautioned her, Mary, don't hold on to me now, for I haven't yet ascended to my God and my Father. And he's not only my Father and God, by the way, but now he's your Father and your God. Now, go to my brothers and tell them what I've told you, that I am ascending to my Father. Your father, my God, your God. Then Mary Magdalene left to inform the disciples of her encounter with Jesus. I've seen the Lord, she told them, and she gave them his message. That evening, the disciples gathered together, and because they were afraid of reprisals from the Jewish leaders, they'd locked the doors to the place where they met. But suddenly, Jesus appeared among them and said, Shalom, peace to you. Then he showed them the wounds of his hands and his side. They were overjoyed to see the Lord with their own eyes. Jesus repeated this greeting, Shalom, peace to you. And then he told them, just as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And there it is, John 20, 21, your memory verse for the year. Peace to you. Just as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. This is the word of the Lord. There are many uncertainties in this story. Uh, many things that we're not quite sure about. And those of us who have inquisitive minds, when we read a passage of scripture like this, we ask questions of the text and we wonder what happened in between the words, basically. What is not being said here? How exactly did this look as it took place? I've got a number of questions about this, things I'm not entirely sure of. One of the things is it describes the disciple that was there with Peter as the other disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, for 1,991 years, <laughs> well, not quite, but for hundreds of years, there's been debate about which disciple that actually is. And uh, was there a difference between the Apostle John and the author 
John, we call this John's Gospel. Uh, Irenaeus, a guy from 150 AD, uh, said that was the apostle. But there's always been this skepticism about who exactly it might be. He calls himself the other disciple. He had the audacity to call himself the one that Jesus loved. Why did he make a deal about running to the tomb and outrunning Peter? Was it just an ego thing? Did he want people to see the impetuous nature of Peter, Peter, who was rude and just went straight into the tomb without thinking about it, whereas he was more polite and stayed back and just gazed in, understanding it was a sacred place? Why did he record that? Why did he record that the face cloth around Jesus' body was laid separate to all the rest of the body cloths that had covered his body? Uh, this face cloth was separate. Why does he record that? Is that purely a physical thing that he noticed or is there some type of theological significance there? Is there some significance uh, around differentiating between the body of Christ and the head of that body? I don't know. How did these cloths come off Jesus? Uh, normally, if you wake up and you've got something around your face, the first thing you try to do is to take that cloth off, but you can't because you're wrapped tight. How did Jesus get out? Did someone come into the tomb, an angel possibly, and unwrap him? Did they unwrap his face and fold it and he just burst out of the rest? I don't know. I do like this photo, though. I've posted this on social media before. It's one of my favourite uh, artistic impressions of what happened resurrection morning. <laughs> Strong Jesus bursting. Out of his grave clothes, if you can notice, there's actually a hole in his hand and his feet as he runs away there. What is the significance of the two angels? Why does John, or the author, make say very clearly one was sitting at the top where Jesus' head was and one was sitting at the feet? Is this supposed to be a picture hearkening back to the Old Testament of when two angels guarded access to the Garden of Eden? Is this his way of saying those angels have guarded this presence and now that presence has gone out? Is it his way of saying, as Moses did, because Moses drew on that when he built a big box, basically. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Those of you who've watched, um, what's it called? Yep, thank you, Indiana Jones. You know what I'm talking about. That Ark had two angels on either side. It was like these two angels, top and toe, were guarding the presence of God. Was that what this is meant to symbolize? And that's why he saw those two angels there. Why did Mary not recognize Jesus? She'd known him for years. Now, I was away last weekend. I was speaking at York Peninsula. I was away for two days. If I got back from that trip after two days and you didn't recognize me after knowing me for years, I'd be a little bit worried. Hello? It's obviously me. Why did she not recognize him? Did Jesus really look different? Was it that dark that she couldn't see him? Where did he get his clothes from? Okay, he wasn't wrapped wearing clothes. He was in the nude. Okay, where did he get these clothes from? Is he like, uh, what's that other movie with Richard Gere and he's running around escaping and then the fugitive and he grabs clothes out of trucks. Is that what he's doing? Is he stealing the garden? Was the gardener left his togs out overnight and he just goes, breaks into the gardener's shed and gets his clothes? Why did she think he was the gardener? Was he holding a plant in his hand? And what's the significance of that? Is this drawing on the picture of the first Adam in the beginning 
of our Bible story who was in a garden and had the job of working it? Is that kind of what John's trying to do here? After all, a gardener, no matter what anybody tells you, is the oldest profession known to man. The oldest profession is actually a gardener. Why did Jesus tell her, hey, don't touch me at the moment? Still a bit sore from two days earlier? Bit touchy-feely? What's, what's, hey, just hold back, I've had a big day. <laughs> because later that evening, if you keep reading this chapter, Tom, one of his mates, and Jesus said, come, touch me. So why did he say here, don't touch me because I haven't yet ascended to the Father? Does that mean the ascension that took place 40 days later? Did Jesus walk around for 40 days? Don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. <laughs> doesn't seem that he did. Or is this somehow alluding, for the Bible scholars in the room, to the festival of first fruits? Too much for most of us on Easter Sunday. Just switch off for 30 seconds, okay? Jesus rose on Sunday. The Jews at that time were celebrating a festival called first fruits. It's when they bring their crops and the high priest offers those crops to God. And Jesus, it said, rising on that day is a picture of those first fruits offering. Is it possible that that day he took the people in Matthew 28, 27, one of the most peculiar verses in our Bible that says on the day Jesus died, tombs broke open. And on the day he was raised, other dead people are walking around. Is it possible Jesus took those people and himself as a first fruit offering and that day ascended to heaven as a, to offer as high priest the first fruit? Is that the ascension he's talking about? Okay, these are the kind of stuff I think about. You don't have to think about it. You're just worried about how big an Easter bunny you're going to get when you get home. I get it. I don't know. There's a lot of uncertainties about this story. And Jesus here appears to them at evening. He appears to Mary in the morning. And then he doesn't rock up until evening. What was he doing all day? Apparently he went for a stroll on the Emmaus Road, if you believe Luke. Why? The people, God, the Romans and the Jews have just killed him. And there's Jesus just walking around, having a walk in broad daylight. Really? What did he do all day? If you died in Rosie, don't you go to your mates first? I just want to let mum know I'm okay. You know, I've got to go, got to go see mum. No, Jesus is waiting to the evening. What was he doing all day? Well, kind of we don't know. But these are the things I think about. But here's what we do know. Because my job as a preacher, well, if I'm, this is what good preachers should do, it's to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And to discern between those things that are ambiguous and we're not really sure about, but to really focus on those things that we do know for sure. To focus on the most important things. And today, there are three things I know about this story. We see a curtain that was torn apart. We see a stone that was rolled away. And we see a home that was transformed. Where there was fear, intimidation, and trepidation, suddenly Jesus came and there was peace. There was overjoyed response. And there was hope as Jesus spoke destiny to his bemused friends. A curtain had been torn apart. A stone had been rolled and a household had been transformed. For those visiting, we're not Baptist, but I am a three-point preacher. That's how I roll. (laughs) 
First thing, the curtain had been torn apart. This happens on Good Friday. We didn't have a Good Friday service, so you're getting that for free today. Curtain had been torn down after the Gethsemane moment that we celebrated Thursday night, commemorated on Thursday night. Jesus is taken away, he's beaten, old Mel Gibson thing happens. And then on the Friday morning, as he's hanging on the cross, by the afternoon he yells out, Lord, take my spirit. He yells out, it is finished. And the moment he said those words, it is finished, in the temple, this massive curtain was supernaturally torn from top to bottom, heaven to earth. Now this thing was an absolute monster. The temple complex in Jerusalem in the first century was between 35 to 40 acres big. Think Adelaide Oval and then have seven of them side by side. That's how big the temple complex was. Not the temple itself, but the temple grounds was that big. It was huge! It wasn't a shed in the you know, back part of an industrial estate. It was a massive complex. And the temple that there was there was an absolute monstrosity. A guy called King Herod had built it. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. King Herod is the guy who appears in the Christmas story. And he'd built this basically to calm the Jews down, to make sure that they didn't revolt again, which they had a habit of doing, and to keep them happy. He invested millions into it. Thousands of lives were lost as it took years to build this amazing temple. The curtain itself, they reckon, was about six stories high. It wasn't like this one. Okay, It was six stories high. They reckon it was as thick as a man's, the palm of a man's hand, and it took 300 men to manhandle the thing. It was a monster. And the moment Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, supernaturally, something very practical happened to that curtain. It tore apart. Now, the theological implications of that are also quite significant. This temple, what does that mean, Chad? Who cares? Well, the curtain acted as a barrier between, effectively, heaven and earth. In fact, the colours of it are meant to represent heaven and earth. The curtain basically said, access denied. You are over there. God is holier than thou, and he is over here, and the two shan't meet. Unless you're a high priest and you can come in once a year through right, ritual, regulation, routine and religious practices. You, then you can have an exception. You can get a pass and you can come in behind the curtain. But other than that, God's presence is blocked off from everybody else. Essentially, the curtain communicated access denied. A first century historian who's not a Christian, who's a Jewish man, tells us that that holy place was unapproachable. Invisible to all, it was called the Holy of Holies. Heaven and earth separate it. You can't come in. And so essentially this curtain represented a whole form of relationship with God that said you and God are so separate, it is only rites and routines and regulations and ritual that can get you in. And it's kind of God's way, this tearing of the curtain, of declaring the end of ritualistic religion. It was kind of God's way, supernatural tearing, of saying that free and open access to him was becoming available. That Jesus was the end of that whole system, that whole form of relating to God was over. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that system is coming to an end. It was also God's way of saying Possibly, as Chad thinks about it. The curtain wasn't torn to let God out. Because God had already left the building a couple of hundred years earlier 
The prophet Ezekiel says that. He sees it in a vision. He basically sees the glory of God lift and go over to Mount of Olives. There's a whole thing there. Don't worry about it. But that's like five, 600 years BC, okay? About 586 BC, that happens. 600 years later, the curtain was torn, not so that God could get out, because he wasn't in there. The curtain was torn so that people could peep in and see that that place was empty. God was doing something else. You can't fool me with all your rituals and religion and all pomp and ceremony because it's got no substance. God ain't there. Elvis, God has left <laughs> the building. And I don't know whether there's also a possible correlation between a turn, the, the torn curtain and the focus here on the cloth that had been removed from Jesus' face, the prophets, and this is a bit too theological again for visitors, but we're on holidays, Chad, come on. But the prophets often speak about the presence of God being the unveiling of his face. And so I don't know whether the tearing of the temple curtain and the removal of the cloth from Jesus' face is meant to be a parallel there. You can talk about that over lunch. The point is, in Good Friday, we see a curtain that is torn apart. The end of ritualistic religion and the start of a new and living way to access God. God had begun something on Good Friday and he continues his work on that first Resurrection Sunday. The second thing that we see happen is the stone that had been rolled away. There's a lot of things about this story I'm not sure of, but here's two. curtain had been torn apart and a stone had been rolled away. Um, a couple of years ago, the last time we had an Easter service here, I called my message Resurrection Good news or fake news? Good news or fake news? And kind of the point there is to demonstrate that day that the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that there was an empty stone, correct me, empty tomb, the fact that there was an empty tomb is a fact. It's a fact. It's a historical fact that there was an empty tomb. The stone had being rolled away. This is something that many thousands of people were willing to give their life for. Practically, it was a reality that we just acknowledge because that's what you do when things are facts. You're supposed to just acknowledge them. But there's implications to this and there's two main ones that I see. The first is this. The stone that was rolled away shows us that death is not as final as it seems. Death is not as final as it seems. And it looked pretty grim on Friday afternoon at 3pm when they took this dead corpse off a tree, battered and bruised. But death is not as final as it seems. And as a pastor over 19 years, and there's far more experienced pastors than me here in this room today, we know what it's like to shepherd and care for people when it seems that death is very, very final. To sit with people, sometimes have welcomed death for their loved one. Other times where there's been great tragedy, pre-born children, children, accidents. Um, we made the news yesterday here in Victor Harbour because of a tragic accident. There is a family right now coming to terms with the apparent finality of death. Never going to see that loved one again. There is something about death that has that final ring to it and a certain ring to it the old saying goes there's only two things guaranteed in life come on death and taxes it seems so final but the resurrection of jesus shows us that death does not necessarily have the final word 
And to some of us, that knowledge brings a great hope and comfort to us. Oh, thank God, death to know the final word. Because it's only eternity that actually helps us make sense of this planet sometimes. But maybe some of us, the idea that death is not the end makes us a little unnerved. Because it raises the question of what will happen in my story when I die. What is my story at the end of my physical life? What, what does that look like to me? Well, maybe there's good reason for that to unnerve us. In fact, maybe we should be unnerved by that question. Death does not have the final word. There is something beyond death, and that's a very serious consideration that it is wise for us to give our time and attention to. What does eternity look like beyond this physical time-space world? The stone that's rolled away tells me that death is not as final as it seems. The other thing that it shows me is that God is true to his word. And God can be trusted when he speaks. We just read here in John that although they saw the empty tomb, and John, of course, believed because he's telling the story, I believe straight away, he's also humble enough to say, but we didn't realise that the scriptures had said this. The scriptures had said that Jesus would rise from the dead. Jesus himself said to them, literally, I will rise from the dead. And the fact that he did shows me this. He can be trusted when he speaks. Whether it's something he said a thousand, fifteen hundred years earlier, or whether it's something he just said last week, he can be trusted when he speaks. Whether it is his written word or whether it is his spoken word, God can be trusted when he speaks. This is what the stone that is rolled away teaches me. He can be trusted when he speaks. And it is incumbent upon us to trust him when he speaks. Because God is faithful to his word. If that same Jesus that promised he would rise again is the same Jesus that said this, God loves the world so much that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will live forever. Do we trust him when he says that? It's the same Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to know God except through me. Do we trust him when he says that? It's the same God, same Jesus, who said, Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. And if you don't, you don't have eternal life. Is that Jesus worthy of being trusted and taken at his word? What do we do with those words? Because that sounds pretty darn serious to me. C.S. Lewis, some of you know, wrote the Narnia stories. He said, these audacious claims can only mean that Jesus was a prolific liar. Or he was an absolute loony. Or he was truly Lord. So you better work it out quick. Because death is not, is not as final as it seems. And Jesus is worth trusting. He seems to have a good track record of staying true to his word. The most reasonable thing to do is to believe him when he speaks. Christianity is not an unreasonable religion. Because the one we believe is proven trustworthy when all the odds were against him. There's a lot I don't understand, 
There's a lot I don't know, and there's a lot intellectually I can stimulate myself with thinking and wondering and speculating over. But I know he's true to his word. The stone that was rolled away proved it. I know he's offered something that's different to what God's people had for generations earlier, and the torn curtain proved it. And I know that that resurrected Jesus changes the lives of people whom he encounters because the household that comes next in the story proves it. Third thing we see is a household that was transformed. A group of friends, afraid, fearful, intimidated, gathering together. Jesus came into the room and changed their environment by changing their hearts in a split second. It wasn't the first group of people that Jesus has appeared to. This is why you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke, the third Gospel. He describes how Jesus went for a walk on that resurrection morning and met two people. One was Clopas and his companion, male, female, we don't know. But he walked with them and he had dinner with them. They invited him into their home to have a meal. And as they invited him and they sat, they realized it was Jesus. They were despondent. They were disappointed. They were disillusioned. Disillusioned with God? Yeah, common experience. It's fine. A lot of people go through it. You're not alone. The answer is an encounter with Jesus who is living and who is faithful. And he changed those two people's hearts that day in an instant. That night he does the same thing with his friends, fearful of what was to come. They were overjoyed when he met them. Peace came upon them and he gave them hope for tomorrow when he commissioned them and said, the same way that dad has committed and commissioned me, so now I commission you. The presence of Jesus transformed that house by transforming those hearts. And this is why the same author of John, what we're reading now, we believe, wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And he kind of draws on this theme. And he says, if there's anyone that would hear me knocking and invite me in, I'll come in and have a meal with you like a friend. You see... The curtain that was torn is a historical fact. You can't do anything about that. Like it or not, it happened. The stone that was rolled away is a historical fact. You can't do anything about that. Like it or not, it happened. But the house that had been transformed is up to you. Will you let Jesus into your home? Will you let this living Jesus today into your heart where there might be fear, there might be disappointment, There might be disillusionment. There might be any number of Ds that a preacher can list. Jesus comes in and with his living presence brings love, joy, peace and hope. And that door, my friends, is a thing that you can choose to leave open or leave closed to him. And I want to encourage you, open the door of your heart today. Open the door of your home today and allow not a dead historical figure, but a living Jesus to bring the reality of his presence into your life. Because this room is full of people who've had their house transformed. You're in good company. And every Easter, except for last year when there was 12 of us, people sit in this room who don't know Jesus. So you're not alone. You're in very good company. People sit in this room who don't know Jesus. And it's up to you whether you allow him to come in. I'm going to encourage you to do that today. And because I'm a three-point preacher, my church will groan as I say this. There's the I talk about the ABCs of starting a relationship with God. A, acknowledge him. 
Just say g'day. Acknowledge that he is. God, I've ignored you most of my life. I've ignored you maybe the best part of the last three years. I've ignored you. I just acknowledge you today. In fact, maybe even being in this room or listening to this podcast, watching this video, is your way of just saying, I acknowledge. I acknowledge. B, believe in him. Believe him that he is who he said he is, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to know God. And believe that what I'm telling you today is real. He really did die, and he really did raise, and he really is alive today. You have the power to believe. I trust that's a gift that God empowers in you today. In fact, as you continue to read this chapter, I'll just read the end of it. Uh, Thomas, who's one of Jesus' friends, uh, kind of questions the disciples. They say, we saw Jesus. Tom wasn't there. He's out doing the shopping or whatever. And so he's like, I'm not going to believe straight away. And some people say that he's a doubter. I don't believe that. I believe that he was being wise because Jesus had said, after I die, other people are going to pretend to be me. And so Thomas is like, I'm not believing. <laughs> until I really, really know for sure. Jesus comes to him and says, Tom, mate, touch my hands, touch my sides. It really is me. And then he says this. Where am I reading from? I've written it down somewhere. Verse 27. Thank you. Then looking into Thomas's eyes, Jesus said, put your finger in your wound here in the wounds of my hands. Put your hand into my wound and sign and see for yourself, Thomas. Don't give in to your doubts any longer. Just believe. Yeah. Then the words spilled out of his heart. You are my Lord and you are my God. Thomas worshipped Jesus. Called him God. Jesus responded, Thomas, now you've seen me, you believe. But there are those who have never seen me with their eyes, but have believed in me with their hearts. And the blessing for them will be even more. How many of you, is that you today? Have you believed in him? You've never really physically seen You're more blessed than Tom. Jesus went on to do many more miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not even included in this book. But all that's recorded here is so that you will fully believe that Jesus is the Anointed One, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you will experience eternal life by the power of his name. What could be more important than believing in Jesus, the only guarantee to having and experiencing a life beyond this, an eternal life with a God who deeply loves and cares for you? That's serious business. Acknowledge him. Believe in him. And see... Begin to cooperate with him. Begin to cooperate. Jesus commissions his disciples here in this moment and gives them a task to do. And one of the first things we do is we cooperate with Jesus in starting a relationship with him. In the book of Romans, it's, no, I won't read it today. <laughs> it's a big book. But, uh, the book of Romans says, you believe in your heart. The next step is to confess with your mouth. Just say out of your own mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I'm wondering if you've never done that before or maybe you have but your life hasn't been demonstrating that you may have said it with your lips a long time ago but you're not demonstrating it with your life that jesus is in charge i'm wondering whether you want to do that today it'd be great if you did i want to invite you to acknowledge him believe in him cooperate with him confess that he is who he says he is and we can worship him in response do you mind just closing your eyes for a bit? And for those of you who would like to do that today, maybe you never, as I said, you never have. You've never followed Jesus. Or maybe you understand today, you know what? 
I haven't been following him like I've said with my lips. Today, I'm going to cooperate with him again. Just pray this with me. Jesus, I acknowledge you today. I make a decision to give you the attention that you deserve. Jesus, I believe in you today, that you died for the forgiveness of my sin, that you did rise again, proving you're greater than death. I believe that eternal life is something only you give. And Jesus, I cooperate with you today. You are my Savior and King. I trust you with my life today. I trust you with my life tomorrow. I open the door of my heart and life to your friendship. I want to know you. Following Jesus and walking with him is a journey. It's not something we do on our own. It's something we grow and develop in. And if you want to start that today, I'd love to chat with you. I'd love you to make yourself known to me. I want to stay here for a few minutes after the service. Come let me know. I'd love to pray with you again. Okay? Okay, Chad. Okay. For the rest of us, let's do what Thomas did. Let's respond to who he is and what he's done for us by worshipping him and by saying, Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God. hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au and of course if you're ever in the area please pop in and say good day. Bye.